Wow, what a week. Uh, this week, uh, you know, all the things that have happened in the news and, and uh, it, you know, just things here with our own church. And, you know, you, you start to think about things and you put things together. And I went visiting some folks this week and, and the needs are great. And, and uh, you know, it, sometimes it just kind of bums you out, I mean, frankly. And, I, you know, I came in this morning pretty depressed, pretty, I mean, there's just so much going on, and I'm not a real pastor, what am I going to do? I've been faking it pretty good here for a couple, three or four, five, six months, you know, but what can I do to help some of these people, and, and you know, I really just felt you know, kind of down, and I came in, and first thing I hear is, wow, we're going to have baptisms today, I'm like, that's fantastic, yes, and then I, we get up here, and, and we start to, to worship God, and if everything gets fouled up here, but... We're just having a great time, and we're singing, and, and it's, just, it's just so uplifting. You know, here we are in the house of God, and, you know, so many things happen in our, in our lives, and, but we can come here as a family, and we can celebrate and glorify God together. And I, you know, as a, as a Christian, one of the things that, you know, as we come into church, a lot of times we sit here, and we worship, and we do things, but it's almost as if God is out there somewhere, but he's like, you know, somebody out of a history book. I mean, we're worshiping George Washington or something. You know, so you can't really feel it. It's not really tangible. But we serve a living God. We serve a God who loves us and a God who is here with us. And this morning, as we sang and, and we the baptisms took place, I just got a real sense that you know God is with us, that God loves us, and and that it's okay for us to pray and to worship Him. Not around him or to him, but, but uh, precisely as if he was here. And so I want to do that. I want to, if you would join me and just praise God in your own way. Thank you, God. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this morning and for these baptisms. God, we love you. And we're so thankful, Lord, that, that you've saved us and that we're your people. And... Uh, Thank you, Father. Amen. You know, what a week it's been. I, uh, you know, after what happened last week at, uh, out in Las, Las Vegas. Uh-oh, there they go. <laughs> um, you know, you think about that and, you know, I immediately begin to, like so many people, you begin to question, you know, why? Lord, why does this happen? Why do these things happen uh, to, in the world, the, the evil that, that pervades our society, that, that's, that's a part of our world? Um, you know, as a new Christian long ago, that was one of the things that was, a, you know, and some of my friends, that was, their, that was their go-to weapon against my new faith was, yeah, well, if you serve such a wonderful God, how's come you know, these things? How's come that? explain to me the crusades. And they'll go, you Christians killed all these people and, and all this stuff. For me personally, um, you know, I settled this question in my mind when I was about, I'm going to say 13 years old. I'm thinking about 13. When I was a young kid, we used to go to a church in Westville, the great metropolis of Westville there on 36. If you, you blink, you'll miss it. And... Uh, our minister at the time was a fantastic man by the name of Walter Kane. 
And Walter Cain did a lot for me growing up. And he, in Methodist church, they go through this thing called catechism. And I mean, it's sort of like Seth's, when he did that worship, or Bible class 101. You kind of go through it and you learn about the faith. So every day after school, we'd, I'd get off the bus there at Westville Church and seven or eight of us, we'd go there and we would have uh, you know, catechism. And he'd ask us questions and he'd feed us food and it was a great time. And, and it got to be where, you, you know, you know it, it was interesting. He was one of the few adults other than my parents and my grandparents who seemed to really take an interest in me. And it was a wonderful thing. And uh, one night, we're, uh, we're sitting up late. My dad and I, you know, we're right at that age where baseball was all, everything to me. And, you know, dad was still into baseball. And so we're watching the Cincinnati Reds. And it was a late game. It was, they were playing out, on, uh, out in San Diego. So here it's like, it didn't even start till like 10 o'clock, 10.30. So it was like 1 o'clock in the morning. And we're watching the game. And here comes sirens screaming in all directions. We're sitting there, what is going on? I mean, there are just zoom, zoom, the fire department, state patrol. You know, at 2 o'clock in the morning, you're thinking, something's not good. You know, here we go. Well, we finished the game, and next morning was Sunday morning. It was time to go to church. And about, about a half hour before we left, we got a phone call. And it was an elder of the church who had been calling all of the members of the church to tell them that Pastor Kane had been killed the night before in a, a car accident. He and his wife were killed by a drunk driver there on Route 36 as you head to St. Paris. They got the, the S-curve. There have been so many people killed there. Well, they were killed. And so here I am, 13 years old, you know, trying to make church a priority, just learning about what it really is to be a part of a church. I'd always gone to church as a little kid, but... Um, and so I have to start to ask those questions. You know, what's going on here, God? Pastor Kane, he cared about us. He cared about this church. His wife was, a, a, I think, a teacher's aide, or she may have been a teacher, I'm not sure, at, 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 in the Graham schools. And so her death impacted so many other people, and it was an absolutely horrific accident. And so I'm, I'm asking God, I distinctly remember riding my bicycle, and that church had a parsonage. And the house sat right next to the church, and I lived just up the street from the church. And so I was driving back and forth in front of their house, riding my bicycle, asking God, why did this happen? How could you let this happen? Pastor Cain was a great man. He cared about us. He served this church. He served the community. Better yet, he took an interest in me. And now he's gone, just like that. How could you let this happen? I mean, he was one of the good guys. The drunk who, who hit him, he lived. He walked out of the, the accident. It's not fair. And I got real angry with God and real guilty. I felt real guilty because I was angry at God. I'm not supposed to feel guilty, God. I know you're a good God, but I, you know, and I had to deal with that. There was a poll done by the, uh, the Barna Group, which does a lot of research for you know, uh, Christian polling and different things. And They put out a question. If you could ask God one question, and he knew that he would give you an answer, what would you ask him? And the number one question that people 
would have asked God is, why do you allow pain and suffering in the world? Why do you allow that to happen? Eventually, somebody's going to ask you the question of the Baker family, your new Christians. That it's, that's an amazing, awesome thing. That your life isn't going to get any easier. <laughs> People are going to ask you, oh, you believe in a God. Well, well uh, how's come your God let this happen? Why does an all-powerful, all-loving God allow pain and suffering in the world? A great Christian writer by the name of C.S. Lewis called this the problem of pain. It's an atheist's great weapon against the Christian faith. That's the hammer they pull out when they really want to get you. And that's a primary reason why many people reject Christ. I can't believe in a God that would allow this to happen. I can't believe in a God that does that. If God can prevent such terrible tragedies, why does he allow them to take place? You know, here's the essence of the problem. Either God is all-powerful, but not all-good, and therefore he doesn't stop evil, or he's an all-good God, but he's not all-powerful, and he can't do anything about evil. The general tendency, of course, is to blame God then for evil and suffering, transferring all responsibility upon him. So let's look a little bit closer today at that, that question. If God is so good and loving, why does he allow evil or tragedies to befall this world that he supposedly loves so much? Well, I think... Uh, I was listening to a, a broadcast. There was a Christian uh, preacher by the name of Greg Laurie, who i just come to listen to, and he was mentioning some things that I thought that I thought was pretty good. The first part of the, you know, the, to answer that question, if God is so good and loving, why does he let these things happen? Some of that is based on a false premise, I think. People who express those words are essentially suggesting Look, God's got to meet my criteria of what good is. Why isn't God good? Well, what that assumes is that you've created your own system of what's good and bad. And God's not meeting my, my criteria of, of what good is. But who are they to set, and who am I to set a standard of good for God? When did I become the moral center of the universe? When did God have to be the one to meet my requirements? God isn't good just because that's my opinion of him. We don't sing songs, you know, God is so good to me, you know, and we sing God is good. He's not good because of that. Or because I personally agree with his words, his actions. God is good because he said he's good. He says he's good in his word. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 18, no one is good except God alone. How do we know God is a good God? Because he said he is. God is good whether I believe it or not. He and he alone is the, the final judge of what's that standard of good and bad. As Paul said, let God be true and every man a liar. 
So what is good? Well, you know, God is a good God because he says he, he is. He sets the standard. In Isaiah chapter 1, God invites, you know, Isaiah invites all of us essentially, come now, let us reason together, let's talk about this. These are questions on your mind. We need to talk about these things. What is good? Essentially, it's God saying, come, let's sit down, let's, let's argue this out. Let's talk about this now. I, had a, I have a good friend who does that with me all the time. I'll bring something up, and he'll go, no, nah, no, let's talk about this now. Let, let's work this out, because he knows I'm very impulsive, and I'm, uh, I'm notorious for uh, being wishy-washy, and he'll, he'll kind of hold me accountable to things. Let's talk about this. There's no higher standard of goodness than God's own character. God is good, period, because God says he is good. Now let's come back to the second part of the question, then why does he allow evil? Why does he, he allow bad things to happen? Well, of course, we go back to, the, to Genesis again. Mankind was, we were not created evil. Adam was not created to be evil. In their original state, Adam and Eve were innocent. They were immortal, ageless. But from the very beginning, from the time that God gave life to Adam and Eve, he gave them the ability to choose right and wrong. Adam made his choice. Eve made her choice. Sin entered the world. Had man never sinned, there would be no resulting curse. The Bible is very clear about that. When Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race. Adam's sin brought death to this world. So death spread to everyone. It's like a contagious thing. We all get it. Because Adam and Eve have sinned. All have sinned. Does that sound very fair to you? Not to me. That's the way it is, because God said it. And what happened last week in Las Vegas, that's the result of pure evil. An evil man decided, for whatever reason, I'm going to collect weapons, and I'm going to massacre these people. We don't know why he did it, the specific reason why he did it, but I'll tell you why he did it. The Bible says the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? We don't know. We won't know why he did it. Other than the fact that it was evil. So why didn't God create us to be incapable of sin? I've had my friends ask me that. Why not just keep us perfect? It would have been easy. God would you know, go around with a little remote control. We're little robots now. Hey, I think I need a good praise today. Uh -uh. Hallelujah, Lord. You know, that's, that's not how it works. <laughs> he wants us to praise Him and to worship Him and to come to Him freely of our own volition. He doesn't want little robots running around. God wants to be loved. He wants to be obeyed by creatures who voluntarily choose to do so. Love can't be genuine if there's no other option. At school, we have this thing called service day, where we're 
We're telling the kids, you, we're going to have this one day, you're all going to go out and serve, and we're going to earn all this money, and, and, well, not money, but uh, you, you know, it's going to help us to do all these wonderful things, and it's great promotion. The state of Ohio is starting to mandate that now. Kids have to do service as well as their grades to, to graduate. And so we, we put them on a bus and give them a whole list of things. Here's things you can choose to do. And so we send them off and, and we're, uh, after it's all over, we're like, man, you guys did a great job serving. And there's some smart aleck kid. He goes, how can you call it service? None of us wanted to do it in the first place. You told us to go out and do this. So we went and did it. Is that service? We kind of had a point. You know, service is something you do out of, out of your own heart. I don't want to be a robot. I don't want a God telling me you need to go do these things. He wants me to want to do those things. He wants me to love Him. Love's a choice in a lot of ways. You and I can choose to love God, and if we're realistic... You know, we have every reason in the world to make that, that kind of a choice. So, you know, all of us accept the idea that suffering is something that's going to happen. As long as it happens to somebody else, well, suffering happens in the world. But when it comes home to you, that's when we really start questioning and asking God. We can accept the idea of suffering in general, especially when it happens as a consequence of bad behavior. That, that person screwed up. They're going to get punished. He deserves that. When bad things happen to bad people, it seems appropriate, fitting. It's understandable. He was a bad person. He got what he had coming to him. So it's not suffering that troubles us. If a bad person suffers because of what they did, we don't have a problem with that. It's not the suffering, it's, it's undeserved suffering. You didn't deserve that. Now that i got a problem with. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Even worse, why, why do bad things happen to godly people? There are times, you know, I question this and I think about it and I've had you all here for 15 minutes talking about it and I hate to tell you, I don't know the answer to it. I wish I did. If I knew the answer to why God allows bad things to happen to good people, I got a feeling I'd have one heck of a blessing coming my way. You know, I'll see you on my book tour. You know, you can read about me in the papers. But I just don't know. Listen, being a Christian doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer. We may ask the question, why me? But we probably ought to be asking, why not me? As 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, our trials and suffering should not be seen as strange, but something expected. If you're living right now and in your life, everything's good. You're skating along, my family's blessed, I've got a great job, got a nice income, I'm happy, the church is great. Rejoice and praise God for that. But also remember, your time's coming. I wish I could tell you, 
As Christians, you're never going to suffer. That's not true. We know that's not true. Our trials and suffering should not be seen as something strange, but something expected. Jesus himself assured us that there's going to be suffering in our lives. In John 16, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, trouble. But take courage, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That's the good point. Here's what we need to know, I think. We need to prepare for suffering because suffering will come. It's not a matter of if, but when and, and how much. Now, as we talk about you know, this message, you know, keep that in mind. If, if you're blessed right now, praise God. But the day will come when trouble is going to visit you. But take courage. Jesus has overcome the world. The bottom line is you're either coming out of a storm or you're probably getting ready to head into another one. Job chapter 5 says, People are born for trouble as predictably as sparks fly upward from a fire. It's going to happen. It's a matter of time. I was shocked this week when I heard the what... Uh, had happened to baby Zane. That's Morgan's, uh, been your stepsister's son. He passed away. He was uh, five days old, I believe. I didn't know Zane, but I remember a time in our life when our first pregnancy didn't work out. I remember a time when those who I love, people in our family, their pregnancy didn't work out either. And it's easy to ask God, why did that happen? We love you. We praise you. We, we, what's the point? We had fa uh, fa uh, family, Neola's family, her cousin. They lost their child at, what was it, five months old? Five or six? An infant, let's put it that way. It was like a SIDS kind of thing, you know, just what you know, out of the blue. Why do these things happen? I felt the sting of the loss. When we had to go to the hospital because we were losing our first pregnancy, I can only imagine what my wife felt. But here I was, geez, I probably wasn't more than 23. I'm standing here in a hospital in the middle of the night asking, what is going on? Wanting to ask God, you know, what, what's, why did this happen? Almost got him. Wise. The confusion, the fear, scared to death of what was happening. The confusion, the frustration of not knowing what to do. How can I possibly help? Psalm 34, 18 says, God wants you to draw near to him. I don't have any notes today, and I did that on purpose, because I don't want little funny things and, and graphics to take away our focus on what's really important today, and that's the Word of God. 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted 
and saves those who are crushed in spirit. There was a point I vividly, vividly remember standing there, 5 o'clock in the morning, asking God, what is going on? And I suddenly, it's one of those brief moments that will happen hopefully in your life where God suddenly becomes entirely real, as if he was right there. The Lord was near to the brokenhearted. And he was there to let me know, I'm going through this with you. You're not alone. I haven't left you here to suffer. You've heard me tell the story of 9-11 when the towers fell. Where's God? I'll tell you where he is. He's right there inside the building with those people. The towers come down. God is there drawing near to the brokenhearted because he loves them, because he loves us. Let's look at the story of David real briefly here. 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you know a lot about the, the, the story of David, he, uh, oh, he had quite an episode with, you know, with, you know, growing up and then he ended up, you know, with Saul and doing different things in the in the in the in the, in the I, don't, I don't want to say the castle. He didn't live in a castle, but the kingdom. And then eventually he becomes the leader of the nation of Israel, and he's a great leader and a man after God's own heart, as, as the Bible would call him. Well, there was an event that occurs in Second Samuel chapter twelve. David's out wandering around on the top of the house. Yeah, man, I'm feeling great. And he looks out there, and what's on the house over there? Wow! There's some hottie taking a bath? Woo! Who is that lady? i got to find this out. So you know, he calls her over, and you know, she's like, I, look, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to live. You know, I'm sorry, my lord, I didn't mean to. He's like, well, that's all right. He puts his moves on her, and sure enough, she gets pregnant. Then when they find out, Saul's all, or, or excuse me, David's like, oh, geez, now what are we doing? You know, uh, I'll tell you what, let's, let's try to cover this up. Bring her husband over here. Guy by the name of Uriah, I believe. Okay, so Uriah reports to the king, and he's like, okay, here's what I want you to do. Uh, you, you've been a good guy. You've been working really hard. You need some time off. Why don't you go uh, take some time, you and your lady, and you know, go have some fun. He's like, oh, I could never do that. Not, you know, I'm here to serve you, Lord, my Lord, and, you know, who am I to, you know, have these fun things? And David's like, oh, geez, this isn't, uh, we can't cover it up that way. Okay, let's, let's put Uriah in the, the head of the army so they get into a battle, and sure enough, he dies, gets killed. And David takes Bathsheba, and brings her into his house, adds her to his collection, his harem of, of women, his wives. And everybody thinks, she's pregnant. Wow, King David, what a lucky guy. Not realizing that what had happened was a result of his sin, his sin against God. Well, we fast forward about nine months, God doesn't forget what had happened. The baby is born, and the baby's not doing well at all. 
And David's all shook up. He begins to, oh, God, please don't, you know, Lord, this is because of me. I know it's because of me, and I'm praying to you, God, do something for the child. You know. And so David's upset, and he's just been bought out by Nathan, who figured it out, and David's in a bad, bad spot. In the Bible, very distinctly, in 2 Samuel, Second Samuel. I kind of want to look at this real briefly. Twelve, uh, fifteen to twenty-five is where I'm at. Uh, da, 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 da. Yes. Then the Lord struck the child. This is uh, verse 15. So Nathan went to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground. But he was unwilling. He would not eat food with them. He's upset. He's, God, please help me. Help the child. And then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. They said, you know, behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he didn't listen. Man, now that he's dead, he's really going to be messed up. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And his servants said, what's this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you, you fasted and wept, but now that he's gone, you arose and ate food. What's wrong with you? David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious that the child may live. But now that he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. That's a harsh story. There's a lot of questions that come up in my mind. I mean, my Lord, why are you taking it out on the baby? David's the one who screwed up. Why did God afflict the child? This, the sin of David had to be judged. The Bible is not always, it's not always what we want it to be. God is a righteous, holy God who must judge sin. That is his nature. That is who he is. That's, what he, he, that's how he describes himself. That's not me. God judged David for his sin. And God afflicted the child. That's harsh. I think ahead now, today, and I thank God that we don't live in the time of the patriarchs, that we don't live in the, in the nation of Israel. The, the, the fact is today, God demands judgment upon sin. We have all sinned. 
But do I believe that I lost or we lost our first uh, first um, pregnancy because God was judging us? I don't believe that. God provided a savior. He provided Jesus. And upon Jesus, all of the sin of the world fell upon him so that I know when bad things happen to me, it's not because God is judging me to provoke me, to punish me. All of that was put upon the cross, upon Jesus, so that today we don't suffer the judgment of God. It's through his sacrifice. God doesn't take our kids. He gave us His kid for our sin to save us. David realized that once the child is gone, he's not coming back. And I love verse 23. There's very little, very few verses in the Bible that talk about little kids. What happens when a, an infant dies? I mean, the Bible doesn't say anything. What happens? David very succinctly says, look, he's not coming to me, but I will go to him. I will go to him someday. In the loss of those who we love, who are in the faith, the loss of a child, the loss of, of someone, you know, a, a little kid. We'll go to them. I believe that. God has a plan for for children. He has a plan for the unborn, those uh, who go through you know, horrible things and, and lose their lives. God has a plan for them. They won't come to us because that's the nature of this world. That's the nature of sin. Upon learning that the infant had died, there was an acceptance signified by his actions. He rose from the ground. He washed himself changed his clothes, went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. He gave it all over to God in worship. The ability to worship and honor God in a time of, of trial or crisis, that's a powerful demonstration of our confidence in God. It's not easy. Not easy at all. Doing so enables us to accept the reality of that loss. And in a way, David modeled for us throughout his sin and then the judgment of that sin and the horrible nature of what had happened. He demonstrated to us, you know, what we put it all in a perspective. God is a good God, despite what had happened. The result of what happened to my son was because of my sin, not because of a God who hates me, who's angry at me, who wants me to do whatever. God is a God of, of righteousness. What can we do about it as a church? You know, I wish there was a chapter in the Bible where Paul or somebody said, well, you know, when bad things happen, here's what you all need to do. And list it out for us and make it nice and easy as to, you know, but... The call is, uh, in Psalm chapter 6, there's a verse that says, How long, Lord, how long we are worn out from our groaning. You felt like that lately? How long, Lord, 
How long are we going to have to put up with this? How long are we going to have to put up with people shooting people at concerts, people blowing each other up, cancer, horrible things that happen to people? How long? The Bible wants us to weep together, to come together. It's all right to feel confused. It's all right to be afraid. Because they're in a human alive that's got the answer to why God allows evil. God is a good God who loves us. He still loves this world. Don't ever forget that. And evil and suffering are things that we're going to deal with as a people until Jesus comes. And if you're like me, if you're fed up with the world that you live in, pray for Jesus' return. Again, that, that's such a fantastical thing. I think it's like we can't even hardly imagine such a thing. But that day will come. When Christ will come and take us from this world. And there will be no more suffering and pain and those types of horrible things that, that make us question who God really is. I'm so thankful today that we started off worshiping God, bringing people into the, the faith, watching them step into the waters of baptism. That's a beautiful thing. If we didn't have that, I mean, what, what, what do we have? Praise God for that. Praise God for all of us when we take time and worship Him and thank Him in the midst of, of suffering and trials and tribulations. It's not easy. But as a church body, as a people, let's hang in there together. God desires that, that we weep together, that we look to Him, that we bear one another's burdens, and that we show love because God draws near to the brokenhearted. So should we. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's been a one wild week in the world, and we know that you are not surprised by any of it. You're never caught off guard. And you know that the, the evil and the sin in the world is sometimes more than we, can, we think we can bear. But we're thankful, Lord, that you have provided a Savior. This world needs a Savior. And I thank you, God, that your Son, that you sent us your Son to be that salvation for all of us so that when things go haywire, we can always look to you and know that you are a good God who loves us, who gives us the way of escape. Father, we love you today in the name of Jesus, and we ask you to be with us and to bless us and to draw near to us in the midst of great suffering. We love you in the name of Jesus. Amen.